Welcome to the VMware Multi-Cloud Podcast. My name is Sergey Nielsen, and with me today, I have my co-host, David Jossler. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Eric. Thanks for asking. Fantastic. On the show today, we're going to be talking about Tanzu and Pivotal Labs with our guest, Richard Soroder. Richard is a Senior Director, Technical Marketing, VMware Modern Applications. Richard, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's great. Uh, so as usual, we'd like to get to know our guests a little bit. So uh, David, why don't you take uh, Richard through our typical introduction of our guests? Sure. Um, it's Richard, um, we usually start with just getting some background from, from our guests and just kind of their history, where they've been in the industry, what they're doing now, and um, go from there. Yeah, no, sounds good. Yeah, I mean, in a summary, I like uh, experimenting with tech and talking about it. So I've done most of my career. I started in app development in a college job, joined Anderson Consulting, then Accenture, did consulting for six years, kind of cut my teeth on that, joined Microsoft as a sales engineer, and then jumped into enterprise, which was interesting. I spent five years for a large biotech company, and it was good to kind of build that empathy for real life situations, not just selling it, not just consulting it. So that was some of the most influential time. I had then joined a cloud startup in product management, became VP of product, decided to try marketing, so joined Pivotal in a marketing role, became VP of marketing at Pivotal, and have kind of transferred over here to VMware doing developer relations, tech marketing stuff. And outside my day job, I, I teach training classes for a company called Pluralsight, kind of video on demand training. I write for InfoQ.com, I journalist news stories, and I tweet too much. So just kind of keep, uh, keep my interests varied. Cool. Good to have you. I think um, just by way of background, we had a couple of folks on talk about Tanzu a while back, mm -hmm. um, but that was um, more VMworld timeframe last year. And we had made some announcements around Pivotal, but we actually hadn't really you know, closed the acquisition. So we didn't cover off on Pivotal. And um, one of the things we want, really want to get to today is really spend some time around Pivotal Labs, you know, help people understand, you know, kind of what Pivotal, where its history is and where it came from, but also what's going on today with Pivotal. And then we'll uh, bridge into talking about Tanzu and um, some of the updates there. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, it's a uh, good time to talk about it. I think in the last four weeks, VMware shipped more software than any time in its history. A lot of it around Tanzu tech and a lot of new things. So even as we're recording now, We've got a ton of things that have gone GA, ton of things that have gone from vision to actual reality since the last time you've looked at this. Very cool. Awesome. So yeah, where should we start? History of labs? Where would you Yeah, let's start with history of labs. Kind of what, what, you know, a lot of people may not may or may not be familiar with Pivotal. So it's probably good to give them a little primer on yeah. what Pivotal was all about. Yeah, if you asked a lot of random people about Pivotal, they would have said Pivotal Tracker, that's that agile project management tool, right? It's like, yeah, it's a, it's a really big company that doesn't just do Tracker. Like that was... But that was the one thing that kind of came out of some of those early Pivotal Labs days that people had a lot of affection for. But Pivotal Labs was formed back in 89 as an agile consultancy, kind of a small group that helped you know, different small clients. It wasn't a big enterprise type shop. It was a lot of startups and things like that. And they learned pair programming, agile techniques. And they actually did some pretty cool early work with the Googles and Twitters and Ebays and companies like that, actually, as they were forming and had some pretty influential impact back then. Got picked up by EMC, I think in 2012, around there. And then it was spun out as part of the Pivotal, you know, set of combination of acquisitions that became the company Pivotal back in 2012. And, you know, since then, they, they kind of shifted from working on startups to working with enterprise who wanted to be like startups. I think that was the interesting angle is that Pivotal Labs had really cut their teeth on helping companies, you know, use technology as a weapon in their business, like not just as a cost center, but as an actual means to being better 
at what their core business was. And so all of a sudden, all these enterprises look like past of getting eaten alive by these small, nimble startups. All of a sudden, when a Pivotal Labs can come in and say, hey, how about you be as effective as they are, but also with your history and your people and your sort of advantage coming in, that's a pretty pretty attractive possibility there. So Pivotal Labs converted a little more to enterprise in recent years, leading up to the VMware acquisition and continuing even at this point to try to help enterprises get better at shipping software. Yeah, and I know with some of the you know really large enterprises, right, where you guys undertook sort of complete transformations around how they were developing software, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll just stop for a second and say, like, uh, just because of that history where uh, enterprise IT and software development kind of was focused on core applications that were running the company, right? But then somewhere in 2012 or 2010, the whole Netflix idea of your business is running software to it. That is your business. That is your core product. And this whole area of IT sprung up. That's it's kind of almost a different model where that software is running in the cloud. It is your business, and how quickly you get new versions of that product out affects your revenue, right? So instead of it being a costing model of IT, it becomes a profit center of IT, and that changes everything. And I can imagine that IT that was responsive to new product needs had to worry about this new paradigm of building software that is the product itself. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. And I think you know, for a lot of us, even when I was in enterprise IT, a lot of large companies were buying, not building. And so when I'm just buying SAP, I'm buying Siebel, I'm buying a bunch of packaged apps, SharePoint, what have you, I don't feel like I need a lot of software development. This is just cost. It's the necessary bits of running a business. Let me outsource it. But then all of a sudden you started to realize, well, like a lot of the core value stream in a company actually can be powered by automation and software and tech. And I can't buy that. I actually need in-house expertise of software developers. And so all of a sudden in that time frame you talked about more and more, especially as you saw these, these kind of cloud native companies come out and just their agility was amazing. And they weren't rebuilding, you know, an ERP from scratch with custom code because that's ridiculous. But they were also realizing there's so much outside of the packaged apps that you actually want to build software around to build an actual cool customer experience. That's much more than that. So labs itself, I know I didn't really explain what they do, but it's really important to recognize this is not a coaching company, right? It's not a, it's not an outsourcing company. You don't call Pivotal Labs because you want people to right. kind of cheerlead you through development. It's actually a co-development exercise. So we pair up, right? You bring four mm -hmm. devs, we bring four devs, we bring a product owner, you have to assign a product owner, a designer. And we go and we pick a specific app. And then during the duration, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, we're also transferring the knowledge of pair programming, test-driven development, product management, continuous delivery, you know, lean user-centric design, things that for a large enterprise, when you say usability, they think what, like pixels, color choices, we're good there. Like, no, it's actually a lot more when you think about actual usability and flow and data collection and APIs have design and really starting to respect some of that discipline. It's exciting to see big companies start to build design disciplines. So you management. use that engagement as a vehicle to transform how they do everything, basically, right? Yeah, it's a very non-subtle Trojan horse strategy. Yeah. Of, you know, <laughs> you're really trying to make sure that those folks finish that project and then become internal evangelists, not for Pivotal Labs, because it was never meant to be the size of, you know, pick these large consultancies where you never leave the customer. No, the whole point was, let's impart knowledge, do a knowledge transfer, build confidence, build skills, and then get the heck out of here. So you can now 
infect the rest of your org right. with these new practices. So they can then scale that process by just doing the same thing over and over and right. over with other teams, right? That's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's new app development. So I mean, that's kind of the green field. Hey, we need to build some new user experience app. And we've done a ton of that. The other part of this though, now if we look at it today is also modernization. Because look, plenty of enterprises aren't coming to you going, we're starting over, yeah. let's build some new stuff. Like, no, of course not. You're running 80% of your expense on existing stuff, upgrading it. So a big part of the practice now is modernization. How do you start to do some light refactoring so it'll run in a container or it'll run on a cloud or it uses an open source database versus commercial or it's able to handle 10x the traffic because now your customers are using mobile apps to interact with that system, not just calling it an agent. So it goes from a thousand users to a million. You got you to gotta do something there. So it's kind of exciting too to see customers trying to unlock new value from existing software. And that's what that modernization effort is as well. So that's frankly, I think even more popular than new development because that's where all your investment is right now. So, so in that, is it, is it, sim is it a similar model, but you know, you sort of go away and you focus on a project, except it's not a net new project. It's something existing and some transformation of something that already exists. Is it a similar process or does it look completely different? No, it's, it's more or less the same ideas, just targeting different apps. And in this case, you're still picking specific software. You're still building product backlogs that you're going to burn down and try to ship pieces of. You're still doing knowledge transfer, right? You're still paired up exactly. But the idea is, again, you almost have to build a little bit of a modernization factory. And I hesitate mm -hmm. to use the factory word because that's how outsourcing was described and at software camp. Okay, Richard, so can you hear us now? Oh, sure, I hear you. Yeah, lost you for maybe the last 30 seconds. And of course, we're all uh, living in a COVID environment as we're recording this. So <laughs> we're going to expect some kind of stops and starts when uh, when uh, somebody in somebody's house in my neighborhood runs a streaming Netflix service uh, and starts downloading 4K <laughs> video. I'm sure we're going to always get some of that, but we're just yeah. going to keep going. Uh, so I, I find it interesting. I'll just yeah. uh, throw some color here in pivots. Uh, Pivotal was the first I'd ever seen paired programming, right? So uh, I, I came and got a Pivotal lab demo down up in San Francisco and in, in the paired program. And at first I had a cringe, but then mm -hmm. actually when you start looking at the efficiencies of having somebody to work with, right, to have a two set of eyeballs to, to code. And then just having, when you're doing, you know, uh, very fast programming where you're integrating every night, having that second person to be there to actually, you know, build code that's going to then operate in, production by the end of the week. Uh, it was actually kind of re revolutionary when I first saw it, maybe four or five years ago. So uh, I, ca I can see where you've kind of followed along that journey of rapid programming, developing new techniques, uh, mm -hmm. where back in the Sun Microsystems days where I worked, you know, we did OS development. It was a year and a half train. We had uh, C teams, I teams, committees, approvals, code reviews. Uh, this right. world has changed quite a bit, so I, I can definitely see yeah. where you guys can apply that in an enterprise. But it requires some evangelism, right? Because the first time you saw it, probably the reason you cringed is so I, I have cringed, two yeah. highly paid developers doing the work of one. What, what this is a new model I'm supposed to be adopting. So it takes a bit of a right. You have to kind of get it because on the one hand, it looks right. unnecessary, right? It yeah. looks wasteful. Versus, hey, I'm actually doing almost real time testing with this other person. I, I, I was. Lucky enough to get exposed to it in the early 2000s. I was working, I was at HP at the time, and I was working with a lab we had up in Redmond um, that was doing a lot of joint work with Microsoft. And they were, they had just adopted extreme programming. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I got to see it, you know, quite a bit at that time. I thought it was, I thought it was awesome. I just thought it was uh, made tremendous amount of sense. 
um, as a vehicle for just, you know, just, you know, again, the whole idea was to, again, you're on that, you know, you know, moving things closer and closer to dev, right? And so, you know, the just the whole idea that everybody, you know, continuously QAs their work and does it every day before check-in and all these things, it was just awesome. I just thought it was a, made a tremendous amount of sense even back then. Yeah, you just have to shift your mindset from if you measured the success of developers by lines of code, which is a garbage metric, you should never yeah. use that because I can fill up pages of worthless code and, and get paid for it. So when you realize that the best software has the fewest lines of code in it, and code is a liability. I actually want fewer lines of code. So I want to have people sitting next to each other figuring out what is the most effective way to do this thing I have to accomplish together. That's a pretty powerful way when you realize the people are the most expensive part of your org, not the software. So let's put my people into making the best product possible. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and Pivotal today, now part of VMware, doing mm -hmm. the same things, doing some things differently. What's the kind of the focus of Pivotal Labs now? Yeah, do many of the same things. It is the one thing that kept the Pivotal name. So it's not Tanzu Labs, it's Pivotal Labs. It's fine. That's uh, nice to see that stay there. And so in addition to doing the Greenfield app development, like we talked about, the modernization we talked about, something we've been doing for a couple of years, but now is under the Labs brand, is also around operations and specifically building platform teams. So can you apply, the hypothesis is you can apply some of these XP-like principles to operations teams. And you might go, that seems kind of crazy. But what it really says is, how do I look at platforms? When I'm running a platform, can I treat that platform like a product with a backlog, sometimes even pairing on some of the installation exercises and scaling exercises? Who are my customers? Can I talk to them? Can I do small batch releases versus quarterly updates? So all of a sudden, when you start treating your platform like a product, you start getting nimbleness even out of the underlying layer, which is novel for some, but again, a very powerful accelerator. So part of labs is new app development, modernization, and then treating platforms like products. That whole combination is pretty powerful. Super interesting. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on sort of the, the envelope of platform because people see, you know, hear mm -hmm. platform, you think different things, but for sure. when you say platform, what do you mean? Yeah, it's the most overloaded word in tech besides cloud. So, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, the way this was at Pivotal was this would be, look, we would install uh, Pivotal Cloud Foundry, right? We already installed Pivotal Application Service. Then we would help you build a platform team around that, that team that knew how to install, upgrade, scale, advance that platform. And even now the operations team would do that with things like TKG, would do things like the Tanzu application service. So products in our portfolio, helping you stand those up as platforms that then other people deploy software to. Okay, cool, cool. Very cool. Um, anything more, uh, Eric, you wanna ask anything more on Pivotal Labs? Because I wanted to sort of move us on to talk about Tanzu now. It's, uh... Last bit of Pivotal. Just, just as an aside, I would say that mm -hmm. when I was terrified, it was because for me, programming was one of these things I do in my head. The constructs, mm -hmm. you're building out the logic and you're, you're, you're building out a whole framework in your head and then you're putting it down in code. And paired programming for me was this, wait, I have to share what's in my head. Um, now, really, that's actually a bad practice because not only is it in my head, but then I don't tend to comment my code. I don't tend to structure mm -hmm. it in a way that other people could learn it and support it and uh, move it forward if I were to move on to a different project. So I do like that concept that uh, paired programming, actually what Pivotal brought to it was the, the notion of you know, allowing many people to be you know, moving this code base forward over time because you get it out of just one engineer's head in his office. So I, I will throw that out there and then uh, David, I'll let you continue on. No, great point. I, uh, go ahead, Richard, talk about that. If... Yeah, I just so want I... to mainly say one of those interesting things with pairing that you kind of almost alluded to a little bit, Eric, is 
this is one of the best ways to onboard new people I've ever seen because there's yeah. not like, yes. hey, go read the manuals, read the docs, yeah. try to get the build on your machine for the next three months. Nope, day one well, of your assignment with either with Pivotal or obviously at this customer site, you're pairing with someone who knows what they're doing. And you're immediately learning the code base, the practices, even the standards that the company uses. So pairing is an underrated onboarding technique. Yeah, I, that's what I remember from the experience back in uh, Redmond was that um, it was sort of a, a goal where we're possible to pair a more senior person with a more junior person. So you're always <laughs> transferring knowledge and that person becomes senior and they do, do the same thing with somebody else and yeah. so on and so on. It just keeps repeating itself. So, so it's very powerful. Absolutely. Um, Let's talk, let's transition, talk a bit about uh, Tanzu and the, you know, because I want to really, that portfolio is, keeps, you know, broadening and getting bigger and more capable and, you know, and so we had a view of it about um, probably six, nine, six months ago, maybe, mm -hmm. but I want to just maybe, you know, bring people up to speed on sort of where it is today and actually there's some, been some great new capabilities that have been released too that sort of connect the dots between Tanzu and the rest of the portfolio. So um, let's let's transition and talk about Tanzu, what it is today in terms of um, capabilities. And you and I chatted a bit before around sort of how we might structure that conversation. We said we'd like, let's start with infrastructure and then move up the stack and then talk about applications. So maybe we can start with Tanzu and, and uh, start with what we're doing around the infrastructure. It's sort of one thing that comes to mind, I think, you know, our whole view of what infrastructure is, is changing as we considered modern applications. And, um, you know, maybe we can talk about how that fits in as well. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I mean, one thing hopefully for your listeners to to get is that Tanzu is not a, I don't know, a cynical marketing ploy to just rebrand a bunch of existing products, right? It's easy to do that. Especially we did rebrand <laughs> We did, so. but luckily there's tons of new stuff, right? <laughs> that this isn't just stuff. taking a dusty old portfolio and trying to you know, shine it up a little bit. Like there's a ton of new products. Yes, some things get kind of pulled into the family, yeah. but it's actually an exciting set of new stuff too, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I like what we've done with pulling some things in. Yeah, so, you know, the Tanzu summary in a, in a nutshell, I think is the goal is still about delivering kind of better software faster, but you're also trying to operate that underlying infrastructure with the stability at scale, right? Can I do both things? Can I have modern apps? and more stable infrastructure. And I pull those two things together, kind of ops down infrastructure up. And so, yeah, let's talk, let's talk about infrastructure. So I need a compute substrate. I don't think anyone's really gonna disagree with you that that substrate is gonna run across IaaS providers, infrastructure providers. You can say you're only in private cloud, you can say you're only using one public cloud, but we both know that's not really true, mm -hmm. right? You're probably going to be using a lot of different infrastructure pools for the foreseeable future, regardless of what your mission or goal is. So, okay, so what, what's a good, is there a good commonality there? Is it something like, you know, VCF? Is it vSphere for, with Kubernetes? Is it like, how do I have maybe similar components here from a management perspective, from a Kubernetes runtime perspective. So when I look at some of the vSphere integration stuff, can I use all the VI admin skills to manage infrastructure kind of across compute pools? That's pretty exciting stuff now mm -hmm. with the Kubernetes integration. Can I use the same Kubernetes everywhere with something like Tanzu Kubernetes Grid? Because one of those, I think easy to, to have mistakes is that I kind of like Kubernetes is Kubernetes is Kubernetes, right? Like I'll use a public cloud one, I'll use my on-prem, they're all the same. Yep. Kind of, but they're not, right? Because some have managed control planes where you can't access an API server. Other ones are fully unmanaged. Some are different versions. I looked at all the cloud providers this week and 
you have some on version 114 as their standard, others at 115. We're up at 16, 116.7. So mm-hmm. what's available to you? What's managed or not? Which ones have sticky integrations into that co- cloud's identity provider versus this one's using this integrated log provider? So it's all kind of the native Kubernetes API, but the experience could be subtly, in some cases, not subtly different between them all. So do I want a commonality? Do I want to maybe a TKG, Tanzu Kubernetes Grid, in public cloud and private cloud at the edge, same operations tools, same integration, same experiences? There's going to be some value to that. Yep. I want, why don't you talk a bit about um, Tanzu uh, Kubernetes Grid? Because, you know, again, uh, not everybody's familiar with it and sort of just what the what it, what it is it what is it at its core? Because we're kind of starting with yep. uh, the distribution and then extending from there. Yeah, I mean, at its core, it's, it's upstream vanilla Kubernetes. It's not recompiled for VMware magic or goodness or drivers. It's This is upstream Kubernetes, then packaged up for clean installation. It makes sure that you've got some of the cluster awareness with projects like Cluster API. But this is straight up Kubernetes packaged ready for you to use, which makes that very convenient. TKGI is the rebranded VMware PKS. Mm-hmm. Integrated because it has integrated NSX, integrated other components. But... TKG is the Kubernetes family sold by VMware at this point. So not a lot of hopeful confusion there. TKG is is how VMware does Kubernetes. The goal being sticking as close as possible to upstream Kubernetes, always making sure that's what our customer is getting almost as quickly as it's getting released. Mm -hmm. And then wrapping it and creating connections and some additional capabilities beyond that, right, with uh, Kubernetes Grid. Yeah, yeah, where it makes sense connecting to other things so you get some value from that, but making sure that we're always maintaining open access to all your standard tooling, all the extensibility points, nothing's closed off to you. Right, perfect, cool. Um, and then where do we go from there in terms of that? It's like, you know, we're talking infrastructure and that, that becomes the new substrate, if you will, that, that control plane that can work across multiple uh, clouds and sort of give you that common approach to it. Yeah. Vsphere, you mentioned that you can uh, with Vsphere seven, you can connect it all the way down to that. Yeah, then we just get this new problem of now I got a lot of clusters. Yeah. So that's a good. So we're solving one problem, which was let's go back three years ago, and common wisdom was just have a few mega clusters, and there's a few vendors who really banked on that, and I, I get it, right? There's a smaller management surface, maybe a little simpler, but all of a sudden we saw, yeah, but at the same time, like we've learned that sometimes you like to distribute your your fault zones, right? So I want to have smaller, fewer or smaller, many clusters because, hey, some things I install into Kubernetes require root access. I don't want to give that access to everything else in the cluster. I don't, well, I don't want this thing to have a runaway pod usage and, and take down other stuff. So let's have smaller, many clusters. Terrific. Mm-hmm. Now I have a new problem. I have smaller, many clusters. How am I going yep. to maintain them? How am I going to patch them? How do I have visibility into them? So Tanzu Mission Control, which is a SaaS product, right? It's a, it's a managed service makes it really easy to build clusters. So it builds TKGs out in public cloud, private cloud and vSphere. But it also, what's pretty cool is lets you attach existing clusters. So -hmm. whether that's a cluster as a managed service running an Azure Kubernetes service, like I have in my environment just for fun, or a managed Amazon, or frankly, even a mini cube on my desktop, I can manage in Tanzu Mission Control because I can Mm -hmm. attach a cluster from anywhere. So all of a sudden, all the clusters, whether I already created them or I'm creating new ones, I get that... I hate the term, but single pane of glass for all of these clusters where I can see their health. I can see how they're doing for the ones that TMC, Tanzu Mission Control creates. I can upgrade its Kubernetes version. It's kind of a managed service now. I can scale it if I need to. So all of a sudden you get some pretty powerful things for management. 
What's most interesting to me is the policy stuff. So all those clusters, either TMC provisioned or attached, I can do things like security policies that actually go across all of them or mm -hmm. like image access policy saying, hey, I don't care where your cluster is, you can only pull images from this registry, not from Docker Hub or something else. So that's pretty neat that you can start to stripe across these policies and spread them over all these, all these different clusters, regardless of where they came from. So if I'm an overburdened ops team, that's just handing out clusters to everybody. All of a sudden I have at least some sense of order by collecting mm -hmm. that all into one place. So it's that single plane of glass uh, where you need it, right? Because it's like not everybody needs a single plane of glass and not everybody needs it all the time, but it's sort of for those things you do need where you do want to apply policies and you want to have some level of control that's global, if you will, uh, you can accomplish mm -hmm. that with mission control. Yeah, it doesn't preclude me from still accessing and managing those clusters directly through vSphere if it's on-prem or mm -hmm. through a public cloud managed service. I still have access to, I haven't, I haven't walled off anything. Yep. I've just provided kind of an easier all up interface. Cool, that's cool, that's cool. Yeah, so that's um, kind of the good infrastructure story at that point, that's the substrate, right? I've got the clusters, I've got the management of those clusters, but we all know an empty Kubernetes cluster is a sad, depressing thing. Like you have to actually get <laughs> workloads there or what's yeah. the point? <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> so I mean, on the TMC side, again, to me, it's the, how are we making sure we're helping customers who are dealing with a lot of clusters get visibility into them, manage them, maybe have a central point for provisioning, but just trying to provide a little bit of order while not sacrificing self-service, right? That's got to be the thing because we've already, the, uh, the horse is out of the barn, whatever analogy we want to use, self-service is the best way to do this sort of thing, empower teams, right? But I also don't want to have it be complete chaos where I don't mm -hmm. actually know what's happening or I've got different access permissions and different rules in different places. So can I have the order, but can I also have empowerment? That's a hard combo. That's a tough, tough thing to balance, but TMC does a pretty good job from a cluster perspective for that. Yep. Cool. And then service mesh, you talked on that, the Tanzu service mesh is, is pretty neat stuff. I mean, this is geeky stuff. If you're trying to think about like, what is this thing? It's almost managed Istio, which is a, mm -hmm. as we think of service mesh technologies and how do we do really some sophisticated software defined networking of, different components. And so in a, in a nutshell with Tanzu Service Mesh, I'm really able to bridge different clusters regardless of where they sit. And in many cases, things with global, things like global namespaces, I can actually have cluster workloads see each other and access mm -hmm. each other regardless of where they are, assuming they have access. So there's some interesting tech happening there that actually makes it possible for clusters to look like one kind of just federated compute pool which is pretty yep. powerful when I start dealing with lots of different clusters. And service mesh um, solves a problem that sort of was brought on by containers in themselves, right? You go to microservices and it's the, you know, the, the ability to sort of understand the networking becomes much more complicated. So sure. service mesh is fitting in that space, right? Of, you know, really solving for this, you know, how do I do networking uh, in a microservices type environment, correct? Yeah, no, that's well said. I mean, we, we, we keep solving problems by creating new ones, but that's yeah. the history of everything. <laughs> so yeah, we have more compute, we have more services, we have, you know, gone, we, we can be wistful for the three tier app that ran on one server 20 years ago, mm -hmm. but that's not reality anymore. So yeah, right. more microservices that interact to actually deliver an actual experience for customers. And, are, and can be quite dynamic, right? So you have right. to sort of have something that sort of takes that into account as you start to think about networking and then we build manageability on top of, um, on the capabilities of Istio, right? 
Yeah, and a lot of the value people get from service meshes too is you almost get to inherit a set of functionality by running in a service mesh. So these sidecars can give you certain observability and kind of monitoring and metrics things, or they can do some of the network translation. So sometimes even just by running apps in these environments, you inherit some advanced functionality, which is pretty cool. Yep. Cool. We we joked about early on uh, renaming Tanzu, not just being a marketing thing, but there were some things we did move into Tanzu that were uh, were something else before. They were. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically, and we may get to there, and we can postpone this and talk more about um, some other things around apps first. But uh, thinking about Bitnami, which we acquired mm -hmm. a bit ago, and also Wavefront, and yep. maybe you can talk about kind of where they might sit in this perspective of kind of what we're doing with Tanzu. Yeah, I mean, there's really four things that come in to my mind when we think about kind of developer app store. You've got things like what was Bitnami and still is Bitnami, but the commercial play is the Tanzu application catalog. You've got the Tanzu build service, which used to be the Pivotal build service. Mm -hmm. You have the Tanzu application service, which used to be Pivotal application service. And you have Tanzu observability, which used to be Wavefront. So if we look at the first two, right? Tanzu application catalog and build service. What, what What's the point there? So the problem you're trying to solve with the Bitnami bits or the TAC Tanzu application catalog is, where am I sourcing open source stuff from? Right? Where am I getting Redis from? Where am I getting Cassandra from? Where am I getting GitLab from? So you, know, you and I can go to a Docker hub and pull down an image and so can anybody in the enterprise and I can build my own of different mm -hmm. things from source code. But in an enterprise, I like a chain of custody. I like to be able to see you know, what's in this thing. So I know if I'm non-compliant or running an old version of SSL or whatever, I might get audited on. Mm -hmm. So what you get with the application catalog is first things, operators curate a catalog. Here's all the open source that we provide you. Then in the catalog, you choose what you want your devs to access. Cool. Step two, give me your base image. Give me your gold OS that has your maybe stripped down things, your monitoring agents, maybe some special certificates, whatever, your corporate image. Cool. Give us that. Then what the catalog does is continuously Take the updated, constantly updated upstream open source, put that in, you know, combine that with your image and then put that in a registry or repository of your choice. That can be Harbor, that can be whatever. So then the developer can just go to one place and always get an absolute up-to-date patched version of the latest, coolest open source stuff, knowing that this is kind of enterprise approved, can continuously patched and updated. So it's kind of the safest way to consume open source. Mm -hmm. And, and it gives so it's you kind of a cool of, service. Yeah, it's, it gives you that sort of similar to what we're talking about with um, mission control. It's also a, sort of a point for policy, if you will, right? Where you right. can apply certain standards and say, you know, we're using this, we're not using that and sort of, you know, not get anybody's way, but still make sure that the guardrails are in place for the rest of the, for the company keeping it safe and That's doing right. what's necessary there. That's yeah, cool. it's like responsible open source, right? Like I want yeah. to have responsible <laughs> self-service, responsible open source without sacrificing kind of innovation, like go fast, but go fast to be safe. Right. So, There's like no difference. But there might be 10 options for you. And fundamentally, you as a builder don't care. But there's one that is preferred by the enterprise. And we want you to use right. that. It doesn't slow you down in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. So uh, app builders can love that. And then these, the second piece of it, though, so the build service. So what I just talked about was for, for better for us, kind of package software, like you know, full software packages you use in open source, like databases and message queues and things like that. What about the code I write? the JavaScript app, the Java app, the .NET app. What happens to my custom code? How do I package that for production and have a kind of a secure, again, chain of custody security thing? So what the Tanzu build service does is, is it you also provide it with a safe base image. 
here's our thing, here's what we want to use for an operating system, we can provide that, what have you. It will take your code, whatever code you write, detect what kind of language you wrote it in, and then combine the latest base image with the latest sort of app server bits, right? Your Java runtime, your .NET runtime, whatever, and really take everything below your code and build that stack and build a container image. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at that, it's building you a secure container image, dropping that in your registry of choice again. And then what's most important, because look, building a container is a solved problem. We've mm -hmm. been doing that for a long time. Building it securely though, without asking a developer to know anything about containers is kind of cool. But then on day two, what happens when the OS changes, which happens four to five times a month? How's that? Am I rebuilding the container manually? What happens mm -hmm. when there's a JVM bug or there's a app server kind of critical vulnerability? Whenever there's a change in upstream, build service will automatically rebuild a new image of your container. Your source Very code cool. changes, middleware changes, OS changes, build a new image. So between those two things, if it's the application catalog, it's the supply chain for your software, build service supply chain for your custom code. As a developer, look, just keep checking in your code and pulling things from this registry and you're doing the right things. Mm -hmm. like, that's really nice. Just make it easier to do the right thing, right? Versus asking so much of development teams and builders to have to do so much on their own. How about we give them better platforms? Cool, that's very cool. So then the other bits we talked about, you know, we'll get to Wavefront and then the app server. So tons of application service. This is traditional Cloud Foundry, right? How do I turn mm -hmm. a set of VMs into an app platform? You know, integrated logging and monitoring, auto scaling, fault recovery, you know, one of the most widely used app platforms in the world. Cool. So that we just shipped a new version of that uh, Wednesday, constantly keeps updating. We also announced this week, though, the beta of Tanzu application service for Kubernetes. So how do we now do what we did for VMs, turn VMs into an app server to take Kubernetes and turn that into an app platform, an app server? And so what this does is this runs just natively in Kubernetes and gives developers kind of this endpoint to push apps to. It'll wire it all up. It'll make it routable, right? It go from source code to routable app in a few seconds mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And so it's pretty cool stuff that I have this fully containerized layer that runs things like Istio, of course, Kubernetes, build packs, all this stuff. It's just taking the coolest stuff in the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, and turning that into an app platform that runs on Kates. I think that's a pretty cool thing. It's in beta now, should hopefully ship sometime in the coming months by the end of the year. But it's a nice way, again, to try to help builders focus on building software and not having to build all the infrastructure plumbing. Mm -hmm. So if, that, if that's something they're looking to do, which is to sort of not worry about that, this is an option for them, basically. Yeah, and if you are a platform builder, which is awesome, right? There's going to be app, app developers and kind of platform developers, if you will. If you're taking Kubernetes and combining some of our cool open source like Contour or Valero or these other projects, you're building a platform for someone else to use. Some of these components may be in your mix. You might use the build service because the mm. platform you're building needs to have a container build process. Or you slap in a wavefront or a Tanzu observability saying, hey, what's the application monitoring and infrastructure monitoring tool I just want us to standardize on? You drop in something like Tanzu observability, which again, a managed service, monitors, easy troubleshooting, easy pinpointing of problems. So even platform builders can now start taking some of these pieces, which wasn't the old pivotal story, right? The old pivotal mm -hmm. story was, do labs to get better at software, kind of change your life with this platform, and you better do both. Mm -hmm. And it was fine. That worked for a ton of great customers. It was awesome. But even now, it's nice to have the ability to kind of pick and pick and pull. Right? Right. I just want a catalog and marketplace. I just want to build service. I just want monitoring. And I'm going to combine that into my platform. Now you can do that. So you can go from sort of, I just need some of the parts to just give me the whole thing. I don't want to sure. think about it, basically. 
yeah, there's never really been a spectrum in a pivotal world. And now in a VMware world, you can really go from, look, I need to change all of it. Give me the whole shebang to, hey, I'm already 25% of the way there. Give me this. Or, hey, I'm almost all there, but I like this best of breed thing you're doing. Let me pull that in as well. And I think mm -hmm. that's pretty cool that you get to help people regardless of where they are. Cool. I think it's very cool. Yeah. Um, so I think we've if we covered the whole portfolio because uh, I, I had the question just where Spring fits into this and it's sort ah. of uh, not uh, super clear on sort of yeah. Spring and how it fits and yeah all of the stuff I talked about here to some extent is still waiting for you to build something so I need to build the app right so Spring is the framework if I'm building Java applications you're probably using Spring so when a developer is actually sitting in front of their IDE their code editor and, and slinging an app they're building an API a mobile app a web front end they're using Spring to build that. And then when they check that into their source control you know, system of choice, things like CI systems or the build service or other things pick up, drop it to an app mm -hmm. platform, and then so on and so forth. But things like Spring, which continues to grow in popularity every month, which is pretty awesome to see. We also have a lightweight version called Steeltoe that works for .NET applications, kind of a Spring-like experience for .NET. When you start trying to just help developers build better software faster, then you also want to give them a way to ship it quickly because there's just nothing more frustrated for my five years in the enterprise of, hey, I finished the code. Let's wait six months to see it get somewhere. Oh, it's the worst. Like it's just a soul sucking experience. So yep. I want to finish writing code and I want to see someone getting value from it immediately. And the more we can do that, the more platforms are focused on getting code from inventory to value. That, that's when platform people become heroes. So Spring's what they would use to write. Uh, what's our role with Spring in terms of supporting it and um, mm -hmm. you know, helping people get a hold of it and those sorts of things? Yeah, so we have a lot of the open source committers here at VMware. We also offer the Tanzu Spring runtime. So if people want Java support, you can pay Oracle, you can pay Pivotal or, or VMware, you can pay other companies. But we provide full support for the Java stack, the Spring stack, Tomcat, the most popular app server. So if you want a supported Spring experience, you can come to us for that. Okay. But of course, people you know love using you the open source as well. Yep. They got to get it someplace, and they need it supported, so uh, yep. we're, we can help them with that. Cool. Um, that's great. That's a great walkthrough of the portfolio. Really, um, really exciting. It's um, you know, it's a really uh, broad set of capabilities. And as we were talking, it's you know, again, you can go from I just need a little bit to uh, give me the whole shebang, basically. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, you start roping in partner things as well. Because look, we're never going to do all of it. I'm not even that much of a marketer. So right. it'll yeah. never just be us. So you need a good ecosystem of great partners who also do some of the cool data services, who do great CICD stuff, mobile stuff, notification stuff, AI stuff. So we also seem to have a, a growing and great partner program to pull in the best of those as well. Cool. And I, and I think it's sort of an underlying, we talked about it a bit, but, you know, an underlying value prop is, you know, and you can do these things on your choice of cloud, basically, right? Your environment, you know, sort of like, you know. Well, that's, where, that's one of the questions I was going to get at, and then mm -hmm. we breeze just breeze over it, is that there's a lot of dependency across uh, services. So when I'm building my apps, right, I get services coming from different clouds, uh, best of breed cloud services uh, from vendors, SaaS services. I also have, you know, my own 
you know, on-prem virtualization environment with old apps that I have to tie these back into. So uh, one of the benefits, I think, of Tanzu that we haven't really touched on is that it is running on vSphere. It is, you know, uh, it, we do allow it to be connected to different clouds. And, and if I need to connect my application back to existing data center, existing platforms, that um, Tanzu just sits, runs on vSphere. I have that ability to do, you know, connect connections between my old apps and my new apps. I guess there's like a benefit of Tanzu in that it, it some of it is service that's cloud-based that we deliver. Some of it is on-prem that you can install on your current vSphere. I think that that gives you the ability to kind of move forward with where you're existing. Everything isn't greenfield as you started out when, when you said at the beginning, Richard. Yeah. And to your point though, as, as a whole, like very little of this is tied to vSphere. Like obviously it's going to run great there, but the whole point, if I want to run the build service on, you know, Amazon EKS, go for it. You know, if that makes your life better, run it there. If you want to run observability against your public cloud infrastructure, sounds great, right? If you want to use Tanzu application service in any infrastructure, sounds good. So if we recognize if, you're, if your problem space is we have a lot of different infrastructure pools and we have this sort of cognitive tax of switching between them all, hey, being able to have a certain commonality across them, there's real value in that. And that's where this portfolio comes in. If you're vSphere based, it's a no brainer. If you're even in public cloud, potentially also a no-brainer is you're just trying to extend your skill set to all these infra different infrastructure pools without retraining everybody. Nice. Cool. Um, I need have more on the portfolio. This is a great walkthrough of the portfolio. Maybe we can uh, switch gears and just kind of, um, um, Richard, cover off a little bit on, you know, if people want to learn more, kind of mm -hmm. um, what's the best way to do it? Yeah, so you can hit, of course, the website, tanzu.vmware.com to go through product overviews. There's some still good hands-on labs for all the VMware folks who like going in there and trying out TMC, trying out TKG, trying out some of these products is great. If you like the kind of builder app dev story, every Tuesday we do Tanzu Tuesday on Twitch at 1 p.m. Pacific and do live coding of different parts of Spring and other app dev components. And of course, you can always ping your VMware rep for personalized workshops, training sessions, lunch and learns, brown bags. We do like talking about this stuff. And hey, we're all we're all sitting at home waiting for you to call. Cool. Yeah, we're all sitting at home, right? <laughs> so why not? <laughs> yeah, that's the time we're at. We don't know when this is going to play, but that's yeah, the time. Take we're advantage. At. Yeah. So Tanzu Twitch, just because, you know, you said it, I'm going to bring it up. Like Tanzu Twitch on Tuesdays. Um, talk about that. What does that look like? How does that, how does that behave? Uh, I've heard, I've heard also that, uh, you know, who's the founder of Kubernetes uh, that we have on staff does a popular podcast as well on, 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 on Fridays. Day, on Fridays. So we got tons to Twitch on Tuesdays. I thought Twitch was gaming. I thought you had to just watch somebody game. How does that work? Yeah. So it's really just peeking into whatever anybody else is doing. So Tanzu Tuesdays is on Twitch. And so, yeah. So when you log in and, you know, there's a website, if you search Tanzu Tuesday, it'll come up. It, uh, you're watching one of our, typically our dev advocates. You know, in the last couple of weeks, we were doing some, some spring development, building kind of spring cloud apps, showing how you actually build and deploy applications. We'll be doing some more this upcoming Tuesday as well. We'll go through different parts of the portfolio, just kind of showing it off live. To know, you know, it's like live demos. And on Fridays, as you said, Joe Bita does uh, TGIK that goes through different parts of Kubernetes every Friday, I think 1 p.m. as well. We've even been doing TGI, uh, I think for Rabbit on Thursdays, RabbitMQ another interesting open source project in the portfolio. So just to make sure we have different ways for people to jump in and engage. It's a weird time where we're not all going to tech shows. We're not all jumping at conferences. 
we also all have real jobs. So I'm sure our customers can't just watch live streams all day, but sometimes you do need a break and it's kind of a yeah. neat way to peek into some of your favorite people doing things you like. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, anything um, coming up for you, Richard, in terms of, you know, big projects or something you're focused on that you want to share with, uh, with the audience or. Yeah. I mean, my life is Groundhog's Day now. I just get up and <laughs> I feel like I, you know, weekends are just days without phone calls at this point. <laughs> Everything else is the same, but we are uh, launching a new developers portal in the next couple of weeks. So look out for that. So you can go there for open source tutorials, videos, webinar stuff, like just all kinds of developer related technology. So that'll be launching here uh, in the beginning of May and then continuing to make sure we've got interesting events and interesting materials, all kinds of new tutorials on all these products we've been shipping. Cool. Very good. Uh, uh, Eric, anything else you want to cover? No, that's, a, that's great. Uh, Richard uh, Siroder, Senior Director of Technical Marketing, VMware Modern Applications Business Unit. I got to say, that's a lot to say, but um, I'm starting <laughs> to understand the Tanzu pack now, how it's deployed, and also the places you can run it. So I'm starting to, I'm starting to drink the Kool-Aid, which is, which is a good job because so at the beginning of this podcast, I wasn't sure how the new brand was fitting together, what was in there, what wasn't, but I really liked the way you described it. And, uh, and, and I think if you were going to build a modern app and you needed framework components, this is a great way to do it. Absolutely. And having watching this uh, come together since sort of last year in terms of when we started, uh, awesome progress and just building out a, a capability, you know, beyond just what we started with. Um, you know, and, and love the connections down into vSphere now with seven, it's right. awesome, Good, great stuff. Um, really delivering on that value prop of, you know, multi-cloud and having a rich set of capabilities that take you from, you know, a few piece parts if you want it, if that's what you need, all the way to, um, you know, a completely, you know, complete service that just sort of makes it drop dead easy for developers. It's awesome. Absolutely. Come along nicely. Very cool. All right. Well, thank All you right. very much for you guys' time. As always, uh, I want to say stay safe, but I also want to say stay sane because it is Groundhog Day every day and more of the same. Thanks a lot. Thanks both. Take care, everyone.